you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one before you, to the Gospel of John, and we read in the fourth chapter and from the first verse. Allow me for a moment to say what a delight it's been for John and I to be here with you today. I've known John these past almost 20 years, have been privileged to know him as a friend and as a fellow pastor, I always enjoy meeting with him. He represents for me uh, all that is best in the Reformed tradition, humanity mingled with reverence and love for the Savior and a desire to see God's people grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I looked at the order of service tonight and smiled, thinking how thoughtful of John the opening 100th psalm, very much associated with the Scottish church and the Lord's my shepherd, uh, crimined, equally associated with the Scottish church, except we sing them a little differently. <laughs> All people that on earth do dwell, and so on. So we'd still be singing it. <laughs> But it is a pleasure to be here. It's a wonderful thing to travel from my country to this country and to find myself most congenially amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't know one another, but there is a gospel camaraderie that unites us, and that is our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John it's one of the most remarkable narrative portions, I think, in the Gospel of John for any number of reasons. But we will be thinking especially about the 24th verse. But I want to set the context in which those words are found. Let us hear the word of God. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, that is, about noonday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. For you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. If you were asked the question, why was there a reformation in Europe 500 years ago? What was it that stirred the heart of Martin Luther to pin his 95 theses to the door of the parish of the Castle Church in Wittenberg? What was it that animated men like John Calvin, Martin Busser, Heinrich Bullinger and others to rise up and plead the cause of the reformation of the church? I would guess the answer that many reasonably informed Christians would give would be this. There was a reformation because the saving truth of God in Jesus Christ had been buried beneath an avalanche of church tradition. And there was a great need for reformation to recover for the church and for the world the purity of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, that's a good answer. It's a B-plus answer. (laughs) But it's not the A answer the Reformers would have given. Why was there a Reformation? In 1543, John Calvin wrote a little treatise, relatively little treatise, with the title, On the Necessity of Reforming the Church. He dedicated the treatise to Emperor Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor. Calvin wanted to explain to the Emperor why there had been a Reformation. And intriguingly and strikingly, Calvin says this to the Emperor. There were two reasons why there was a Reformation. Number one. Are you wondering what the number one is? Number one, that God might be worshipped as he has sought to be worshipped. And number two, that sinners might be saved according to the gospel. Notice the order. Why was there a reformation? Not first that men and women might know the saving truth of God in Jesus Christ, but that first and foremost, God might be worshipped purely and truly according to his word and not according to the traditions and the ideas and the fancies and the imaginations of mere men. The Reformation was supremely about God. Now, you cannot, of course, divide those two. They belong together. But Calvin wanted the Holy Roman Emperor to understand that the gospel, that the Reformation was not first about man, it was about God. Now, with that in mind, turn with me to John chapter 4. Jesus is evangelizing this Samaritan woman. It's a magnificent narrative, actually. Jesus, we are told in verse 4, had to go through Samaria. Now, The Gospel of John is littered with double meanings, with double entendres. There are probably a hundred or so embedded double meanings. And here is one of the double meanings. Jesus had to go through uh, Samaria. To get to Galilee, it was the direct route. There was a geographical hardness, if you like. I've traveled it many times. I spent two months in Israel as a student traveling regularly from Jerusalem up to Tiberias. There was a geographical hardness, but there was also an evangelistic hardness because God had decreed that this Samaritan woman, unbeknown to herself, God had decreed that she would become one of his. There was a geographical hardness and there's an evangelistic hardness. And Jesus engages the woman in conversation. He he begins where she is. He talks about water. She's come to draw water at a well. And that in itself is significant. In the Old Testament, a well was a place where uh, men and women would get to know one another. It was a betrothal point. You find it with Abraham and with Jacob. Jesus has come to betroth this woman. He has come to be her last man. She's had five husbands. She's got a sixth, the live-in lover. Jesus is going to be her seventh and last man. And so he engages her in conversation. 
And he talks about water, and the woman's intrigued. Water? Living water? Oh, she says, give me this water. And then Jesus says, go and call your husband. Why doesn't Jesus say at this point, as he will later say, I am he. I'm the one you've been looking for all your life. I'm the the man that you've been searching for, but you didn't know it. You've been looking to this one and that one for life. I'm the one who has come to give you life. But he doesn't. He says, go and call your husband. Now, why does he do that? The woman needs to understand there will be no salvation in the darkness. She needed to be brought into the light. Her life needed to be exposed to the light. She needed to be dismantled, as it were, before God. She needed to be humbled. She needed to be brought to see the wickedness of her life. There will be no help for you in the darkness. Go and call your husband. Oh, uh, I don't have a husband. Well, you've had five. (laughs) And the, the, the man you're living with, well, okay, he's not your husband. He's your bide in, as they'd say in Scotland, uh, the, the live-in lover. And the conversation continues. And the woman says, well, let's, let's talk theology. Let's talk theology. Uh, you Jews say that Jerusalem is the place where we should worship, and we say it's on this mountain. She's a Samaritan. And Jesus says, woman, The hour is coming and indeed has now arrived. The hour of God's ordained moment. The redemptive hour. The climactic hour of cosmic history has arrived. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The Father seeks worshippers to worship him in spirit and truth. The Bible almost never speaks of God seeking anything. Apart from this seeking, and what we read in Ezekiel, God sought a man to stand in the gap. I'm not sure there's any other place, maybe you know one, where we're told that God seeks anything. But here Jesus says, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth for such The Father seeks. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said, Those who worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth? What did Jesus mean? Well, here is another of those double meanings, I think, these double entendres. Truth could mean from the heart, sincerely, truly according to the scriptures, if you like. And spirit could mean inwardly. And that's possible. Jesus could be saying to the woman, what matters with God is that you worship him according to his word and from your hearts. And that's absolutely right. The last thing God wants from anyone, not least from us this evening, is mere lip Worship. The last thing he wants is the mechanics of our lips. He wants the worship of our hearts. But if you were to read through the Gospel of John, 
I think you would think, well, actually, I'm not so sure that's what John is actually saying here as he records Jesus' words. Because earlier in chapter 2, John has spoken of Jesus as the true temple. He is the one in whom we worship God. Later in chapter 14, Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. And I think this is one of those double meanings where we're intended to understand not only that God is looking for worship that is from the heart and that is shaped by his word, the Holy Scripture, but that God is telling us that true worship is worship that is energized by the Holy Spirit and is offered in union with Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Now, we don't need to choose, I think. The two surely go together, worship in spirit and truth. Worship that is from the heart, that is inward. Worship that is shaped and contoured by the word of God. And worship that is mediated in Jesus Christ. He is the great worship orchestrator of the church. We worship in him and under him. Hebrews 2, here am I in the children God has given me. He orchestrates the worship of the church on earth as the great worship leader of the church. And he is the truth. He is the embodiment of truth. Worship takes place in union with Jesus Christ. And that's why the reformers, our spiritual forebears, argued that God's worship must always, always be worship that is offered in the name of Jesus Christ. And in union with Jesus Christ, to the praise and glory of God in Jesus Christ, according to the word of God of God. God's worship, in other words, is to be regulated by his self-revelation in Jesus Christ. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to ask this question, what what, what does that actually mean for God-honoring worship? Man's chief end is to glorify God. Our first calling in life is to worship our maker to give glory to the God of our salvation. That's the first great calling of every human being in this world, to worship God. And it should be a deep concern of us to know how does God want us to worship him. I found it perplexing throughout my 37 years or so as a Christian minister to come across Christians who are passionate about having their understanding of salvation wholly and completely informed and shaped by the word of God, but don't have their doctrine of worship wholly informed and shaped by the word of God. It's as if anything goes in worship. But if you were to dare to suggest, well, does that mean that anything goes in terms of justification, sanctification, glorification? Oh, oh no. We must be governed and guided by the Bible alone. Well, 
What about worship? Is worship simply to be left to the imaginations, the fancies, the cultural fads and fashions of the day? You may know the words of C.S. Lewis, fads and fashions come and go, but they mainly go. (laughs) And, And so often the church hitches itself to the latest cultural fad. Well, Let's try this. And all the time, the Lord is saying, I have told you in my word how I will be worshipped. And that's why the reformers, and Calvin in that treatise said to the emperor, there was a reformation because God was not being worshipped according to his revelation. Let me mention six things very simply and very briefly. Number one, God's worship should be scriptural. What I mean is simply this, that true worship, worship in spirit and truth, will be filled with the truth of God's written revelation. Worship will be patterned after the songs of the Old Testament and the songs of the New Testament. It will be worship that blends objective truth with heartfelt experience. Worship that will not be shaped by tradition or culture, but listen to this, worship that does not ignore tradition or culture. Let me explain that. When the reformers spoke about sola scriptura, scripture alone, they did not mean nuda scriptura, naked scripture. Let me explain that a little bit more. When they said sola scriptura, scripture alone, they didn't mean let's have the Bible and nothing else. The reformers were steeped in the church fathers, for example, and they sought to understand God's word in the light of the tradition of the church throughout history. The tradition was not absolute, only God's word is absolute. But they realized it it would be craziness in the extreme to ignore the insights of previous generations of Christians that the Holy Spirit had blessed and enabled to understand the rich truths of God's word. So they didn't ignore tradition. They did not absolutize it. They were always taking everything to the touchstone of Holy Scripture. But they did not believe in naked Scripture, nuda Scriptura. If you were to speak today to a Jehovah's Witness and said to them, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Absolutely. Well, you can be a member of Covenant Church in Monroe. Do you believe the Bible is the infallible word of God? Absolutely. But if you were to say to them, do you believe Jesus Christ is the eternal son of God? They would say, no. They could assent to the verbal propositions, but when you begin to interrogate them as to the meaning of the verbal propositions, you would soon discover they were heretics. The reformers wanted to recover for the church the absolute pivotal centrality of Holy Scripture, not divorced from the tradition of the church, John Calvin, for example, in his greatest work, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, 
quotes Augustine 403 times. I counted once, 403 times. He only quotes Athanasius twice, but that's another question altogether. Now, why does he do that? Not to show off, but to say, do you see that what we are recovering for the church is not novel? It's what the church in its better days always truly believed. And so our worship is to be shaped and styled and informed and directed by the word of God filled with his truth. This wonderful blend of objective truth and heartfelt experience. Secondly, God's worship. This is a bit of a mouthful, but I'll try and explain it. God's worship will be Trinitarianly Christological. Trinitarianly Christological. That is simply to say that Christian worship, worship that is honoring and pleasing to God, will be worship that is offered in Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, to the Heavenly Father. I mentioned this morning, just in passing, John Calvin's delight in some words of Gregory Nazianzen, a late 4th century Greek church father. Let me quote the words exactly this evening. Listen to Gregory, and Calvin said, these words vastly delight me. No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. When I think of any one of the three, I think of him as the whole. And my eyes are filled. And the greater part of what I am thinking of escapes me. I can never read that without being challenged. And if I'm honest, humbled oftentimes to the dust. When were you last overwhelmed? by the wonder of who God is? When were you last so overwhelmed that tears filled your eyes and your heart was so full that you could no longer think coherently? You had to simply bow your head in wonder, love, and praise. Christian worship is uniquely and distinctively Trinitarian. Our worship should have a Trinitarian cast. It's a great delight for me to see that it is here. Our praise should have that Trinitarian note suffusing it. Our prayers should be Trinitarian. Christian worship is Trinitarian. Christian salvation is Trinitarian. Jesus Christ is always the sent one of the Father, enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Baptism is into the name of the triune God. And so you could go on. You see, even when we're singing to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my glory are, my beauteous dress, even when we are singing to the Savior himself, we're singing to him as the sent one of the Father, upheld and enabled by the Holy Spirit. When we think of the one, we cannot but think of the three. When we think of the three, we cannot but think of the one. 
Thirdly, God's worship will be supremely, if not only, communal. Now, I touched on this briefly at Sunday school. Let me simply mention it again. Christian worship will be supremely, if not only, communal. What I mean is that the high moments and points of Christian worship will not be our quiet times or our family worship times, vital though they be. The high moments of Christian worship will be the corporate worship of the saints. It is together with all the saints, Ephesians 3, that we learn how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. Christian worship is natively communal. I have four children, as John mentioned earlier, and there are few things that more delight me than having my children together with me. And to have them with their, their spouses and our four granddaughters, it just, Joan and I just love that. Life is just at its fullest when we're all together. There is something particularly sweet in well-regulated families. <laughs> when we're all together, the Heavenly Father delights to see his children together. That's why what we call the ordinary means of grace, they're actually extraordinary, but the ordinary means of grace corporate worship, the Lord's Supper, the church at prayer, fellowship. These are God's principal, if not only, means of grace to build us up and to bless us. God can bless us in any, any number of ways. He is sovereign, but uniquely he is pleased to make his presence known when his children are together, gathered on the Lord's day for his worship. Christian worship is communal. Fourthly, God's worship will not be tied to a holy place, but it will focus on a holy day, the Lord's day. The word holy simply means set apart. Now, all of life is worship, isn't it? Romans 12 verse 1 Present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable or rational worship. All of life is worship. We're to bring every thought captive to Christ. But when Christians gather on the Lord's day, we don't simply gather for fellowship and for teaching. We gather to worship our great and glorious triune God. God is the great focus of the church's life. Now, of course, we come to be blessed. We come oftentimes with heavy hearts, distracted minds, with burdens that weigh us down to the very dust of the earth. We sometimes come with hearts that are broken asunder, Perhaps we've gone through tragedies that have left us bewildered and confused and hardly able to, to understand the beginnings, the outskirts of God's ways with us. And we come to church and the minister lifts up his hands 
and in one way or another says, let us worship God. It's the greatest, let us worship God. Four words. It's the greatest four words you'll ever hear. And it's summoning God's people in all the variegatedness of their lives, in all the perplexities of their experiences, in all the confusions of God's providences. It's saying, brothers and sisters, let us worship God. Let us put our hands to our mouths like Job and bow down and worship God. That's what Christian worship is. That's what worship in spirit and truth is. Because Jesus Christ came into the world to give glory to the Father. And the church in Jesus Christ exists to give glory to the Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. And so often, you see, we've been seduced by the, the culture we live in and the society we live in, to think it's really about us. You know, we come to church, we go away and say, well, I wasn't so blessed this morning, and the minister maybe really wasn't on key today. And it reminds me of a young minister in Australia who, who went to a senior pastor, and the young man was really quite disgruntled with his congregation. He said to the senior man, a very older man, he said, you know, they just don't appreciate me. I preach my heart out, and I labor, I visit, and I try to counsel, and they, 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 they just don't appreciate me. And the older minister listened for some minutes, and when the young man paused for breath, the older man said, it's not about you, stupid. <laughs> you know, sometimes the best counsel you can give can be brief and pointed, but necessary. And it's not ultimately about us. It's not ultimately about you and about me. It's about God. About his determined resolve to bring glory to his son. Number five, very simply, God's worship in spirit and truth will be worship from the heart. We can never be reminded too often, too often, that God looks in the heart. I was really blessed this morning. I, I loved the way John had ordered the service. I thought prayers really ministered to me, and I found the whole shape of the service so helpful. And, and that's great. And as long as that's infused with the heart, which it was this morning, God is honored. But the danger is we can, like the Pharisees, we can suck the marrow out of the form, and the form is left. That happened in the 18th century in Scotland, the age of moderatism. There was outward conformity to everything that was good, and the marrow had been sucked from it. The life had been evacuated. God looks on the heart. And worship that is in spirit and truth, that is in union with Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of Christ, is worship which is the overflow of lives invaded by the grace of God and the gospel. Worship is the overflow of a life, isn't it? Or it ought to be. 
the overflow of joy and delight. That's why we love to sing. Where would our worship be without songs of praise? God puts new songs of praise into our hearts because sometimes it's only a psalm or a hymn that can express the the deep emotions of our lives. That's why the Psalter should be so much uh, in Christian worship in our prayers and the language you use and I think also in our songs because it expresses the whole gamut of the life of faith, the highs, the lows, the joys, the sorrows, the oppressions, the depressions, the perplexities. Calvin called the Psalter an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. And God looks on the heart. God looks on the heart. And finally, number six, God's worship will be joyfully reverential. Christian worship is this beautiful blend of deepest reverence and heart-stopping joy. You find it, for example, in Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Joyful reverence. One of the missing notes, I think, in modern evangelical worship, because that's my tradition since I was converted, is reverence. And reverence doesn't mean dullness. It doesn't mean being long-faced. It doesn't mean being lugubrious. Reverence means acknowledging God for who he is. He's not a bigger version of you and me. He is a diameter removed from us. He's the high and the holy one who inhabits eternity. The unfallen angels veil their faces before him. But he is also our father to whom we can run. To whom we can run. Remember how Jesus brought that out so beautifully in what we call the parable of the prodigal son, really two sons. I think actually the main burden of the parable is not the prodigal, but the elder brother. And the prodigal leaves and he wastes his life in riotous living. And then in the mercy of God, he comes to his senses and he says, I will go back. And I'll say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And he turns back and makes his way to the father. And while he's yet a long way off, the father sees him and runs to him. You see, we have a father. You know, the the Pharisees said to Jesus or said about Jesus, this man welcomes sinners. How awful. And Jesus says, no, I don't welcome sinners. I run after them. We have a father who opens wide his arms all the day long. And we can run to him and nestle in the everlasting arms. But he is the high and the holy one. He is our father who art in heaven. And this 
note of joyful reverence is a note that surely is a mark of worship that is in spirit and in truth. And so for the reformers, the Reformation was first and foremost about God. Recovering true worship. Now that of course meant the recovery of the gospel of God's grace. Because you cannot worship God in spirit and in truth until that gospel has invaded you in spirit and truth. Because worship is the overflow of lives that have been invaded from without. The gospel comes from another world and it comes to make us worshippers. Do you know why we evangelize? You say, well, that's a dumb question. We evangelize so that people won't go to hell but go to heaven. That's not why we evangelize. If you think that, I'm not sure you've understood the gospel rightly. We evangelize so that God might have worshippers. That people might be rescued from the dominion of darkness and become worshippers of the living God. So that when people enter this place, maybe a stranger will come next Lord's Day and happenstance, it would seem, brings them to the door and they wonder what's going on. What are they going to hear? What are they going to feel? You know, I think sometimes we underplay feeling. There is a spiritual atmosphere. What will they notice? Will they think, God is in this place. These people are engaged in something that is singularly important. These people are taken up seriously and yet joyfully. You see it in their faces. Truly God is in this place. So Jesus said to the woman, the father seeks worshippers. That's what you were made for. You were made to worship God. And when your heart begins, maybe for the first time, to worship God, you're beginning to discover what you were made for. Because God made us for himself and our hearts can find no rest until they find rest in him. Let us pray. Ever blessed God, you who are our Father in heaven, we bow not only our heads but our hearts, we prostrate our lives before you. We acknowledge together that you alone are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that you are worthy of our utmost and our highest. Look upon us, Lord, in tender mercy. Be glorified in this place. Prosper the life of this congregation. Enable John and Jonathan and all who serve you in this place to do so to the praise of your glory. May Jesus Christ be exalted 
in all that this congregation does. And we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith this evening responsively from the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Amen.